Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's coming up to Christmas 2022. I'm driving to Whiskey Creek once again, but this time I'm going to chop down a Christmas tree. The roads are in worse shape than when I drove here in the summer and early fall. It's colder too. There's snow on the ground. I feel differently about these forests now, knowing there are people living out in the woods. When we pull up to the Whiskey Creek tree farm, there's a lovely big bonfire offering a warm welcome. A woman in a red checked shirt is tending the fire with her six-month-old doodle, Lucy. A worker also in red plaid waves a friendly hello. We get the 411 on the farm, an offer of a cup of hot chocolate and a hot dog. And as we chat, a man pulls up. He jumps out of his truck with his red checked plaid jacket on. He looks at me, also in my signature plaid, and jokes, I see you got the memo. It's an old joke, but we all laugh. It smells amazing out here. There are fresh cut trees, a campfire, and mountain air. I can see the draw for those looking to escape the chaos and violence of street life or shelters. We drive around the farm for a while. Finally, we spot a beautiful tall tree, kind of oddly shaped with long needles, a perfect Charlie Brown tree. My husband breaks out our small saw and shouts timber as he fells this year's lovely tree. We stop back at the fire to chat with the woman in the red plaid on our way out. I take an opportunity to mention I'm working on the Whiskey Creek story and ask what they've been hearing. Turns out she doesn't live in the neighborhood, but she says the area has taken on a different feel since that day. She finds herself looking over her shoulder and wondering who might be out there. She is not the only one. Here's a reply I got when I asked a local chat group about the impact on their community. The ripple effect. Never thinking about the semi-regular gunshots heard in the area before. Now, since this unsolved horrendous crime, that has changed. I and others hair raise are nervous with sitting, sleeping, or hanging in our wilderness gardens. Look forward to the solving of this case for all involved. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. The police have said the public 
is not in danger, that this is an isolated incident between parties well known to one another, and that there is no ongoing risk to the public. That may well be true. But I have now talked to at least a half a dozen people who are living in fear because of who they know and what they know. Of all the cases I've explored on island crime, this is the one which has left me feeling most fearful for my own safety. It's been strongly suggested to me by two individuals that I drop this story altogether. I took those suggestions as warnings, not exactly threats. And I believe if I'm fair and approach everyone with kindness and respect that I should have nothing to fear. But I will add my name to the list of people who will rest easier when and if there are arrests in this case. Sean McGrath is at the heart of this story. But up until now, he's been a shadow. Everything I've learned about the man amounts to a thin social media trail, to rumors, and of course, his lengthy criminal record. But John McGrath, also known as Papa John, wants you to know that despite his son's failings, Sean McGrath was a human being who didn't deserve to be murdered in cold blood at Whiskey Creek. I've been trying to speak to John McGrath since I started work on this story. He initially turned down my request, but then in the spring of 2023, I learned he was considering speaking to me. We talk on the phone a few times. Yeah, I heard you, I heard you, you, uh, you were around asking questions about us. Despite living on the West Coast for almost 40 years, John McGrath has a strong Newfoundland accent. They were, they were killed. And there's another kid that got shot in the shoulder. Right. Yep. Right. And uh, I guess I heard him with a torch to the trailer and burnt uh, burnt the bodies and four dogs. He tells me he's learned a lot about the circumstances leading up to his son's death. He hints he may even know who's responsible. So we arranged to meet in person. He's being fitted with a heart monitor. And so I head across the island to sit down with him in his own home. It's a beautiful morning for a drive. The sun is shining and the seabirds are flying overhead. It's just before Easter. I've been told Sean's father was a convicted drug dealer, but that's really only part of his story. John McGrath and his wife, Violet, raised four kids together. They were married for 44 years before ALS claimed her life and left him a widower. Much of John's earlier life was spent working as a miner in places like Sudbury, my old hometown. John McGrath now lives in a mobile home park in the Qualicum area. The resort sits across from a glittering stretch of Oceanside. Hi there. Do you know where John McGrath's house is? Said it's got a little picket fence around it. Yeah, he'd be an elderly fellow, probably. Newfoundland, from Newfoundland. Okay, can I loop around this way? Okay, 
thanks so much. You, but if you can't find it, if you go into the office, you'll be able to tell yep. you where it is. Right, okay. Thanks so much. I pull up in front of the trailer John now calls home. There's a small deck outside with two bright purple Adirondack chairs. And there's a tiny black and brown dog running around. Hello! <laughs> Are you friendly? <laughs> you got a little friend, Diego? Diego, come. Diego. It's okay, Diego. You look friendly. John emerges, trying to corral the little dog back inside. He's dressed in a black t-shirt and jeans. His hair is now gray, and it's thin on top. He has a mustache and bright, dark eyes. He tells me he's 78, and he appears to be a little unsteady and is experiencing heart troubles. John invites me into his home. I'm always a bit surprised by how much people can fit into a small space. There's a bed, a tiny kitchen, and a sitting area. The walls are covered in family photos and pictures of island scenes and wildlife. John takes a seat on the bench with a large painting of a bear behind him. Can you maybe tell me what you had for breakfast? Oh, I had coffee. No, I had a cup of tea and two slices of toast. He's anxious to talk about his son's murder. But I also want to learn what I can about Sean's life before Whiskey Creek. He pulls out a box of family photos and begins sifting through them. That was Sean. That's Sean there. No, that's Sean right there. Oh, my God. So cute. All these stupid kids that I had. I didn't make all the kids. I love looking at old photos. I'd prefer to sit talking to John about his kids and his grandchildren. But it is the events at Whiskey Creek that have brought me here to John McGrath's home. For this small community that we got here, three murders and an attempted murder. Yeah. And uh, cruelly to the four animals that got burnt. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an awful lot of challenges right there. Well, and it just feels like there was the news... And then nothing for almost three years, right? That's what happened. Yeah. They come and ask me, did I want protection or something? I don't need the protection for anything. I tell John, I'm sorry to be here stirring up troubling thoughts. That on this glorious day, he should have to face difficult questions. Well, I've got, I'm getting awful used to it. You are? I have a daughter, Mary, in Sudbury. I born a birth. I have a, a grandson, Mary, in Surrey. I have my wife, Thatcher's in Newfoundland. My younger son, Thatcher's in Newfoundland. There's a black and white framed photo of John's wife, Violet, at the entrance. She's young, dark-haired, and attractive. My wife, we were married for 44 years. When I met her, she was personally made lieutenant governor of Newfoundland. She used to look after the queen mother. Very prim and proper family from the outports. No smoke, no drinking, no drugs. We talk about John's family for a time, about his wife, his other children, and grandchildren. But it is, of course, his son, Sean, the victim whom most believe was the target of the Whiskey Creek murders that I'm here to learn more about. Sean was born in Sudbury, Ontario. Turns out, Sean and I share a hometown. We were both born in the northern Ontario mining town of Sudbury. He was very uh, sports-minded, hockey, 
started at five years old. I used to coach. We are also roughly the same age. So I'm unsurprised to learn he's playing hockey as a little guy. Hockey is huge in Sudbury. John and the family head west. He's working up in Stewart, British Columbia, near the Alaskan Panhandle. He tells me Sean's other love is fishing, that Sean loves boats and being out on the water. Fish. Fishing, okay. He liked it. Then. He helped a guy there, one guy in the boat at one time, catch fish for the fisheries. He loved the water. Sean doesn't graduate from high school. And John McGrath says his son's life begins to go sideways when he moves south. Good kids. Till we moved out of Stewart. Then he mixed up with round crowds over in Squamish. Sean is living in the Lower Mainland. He has a partner named Wanda and a son. John shares a picture of this little family with me. The photo is taken in the hospital. Both Sean and Wanda are wearing hospital gowns. Sean looks young, strong, and healthy. His partner, Wanda, is cradling their newborn boy, Shane. But then, Sean's life takes a tragic turn. Sean has traveled north to visit his father. He and a friend plan to go fishing, and he's brought along his son, Shane. I think he was four years old, if I remember correctly. He came up to Stewart to visit me with a friend that used to be a cook on the BC Furies. And he took my boat and he went fishing. Now, the little fella, the night before they come home, it still freaked me out. He sat up and, you know, I was watching TV, he was sleeping on the Chesterfield. He woke up and he looked right at me and said, what do you want to hurt me for? I said, what? What do you want to hurt me for? So his mother phoned up later on that night and I said, did you punish the boy for something? She said, no, why? I told her what he done. She said, that's, that's strange. That evening when they're getting ready to go home, He's going around to the statue of the Blessed Virgin. Blessed everybody. Little kids say and do odd things sometimes. John here is describing his grandson sitting up in the middle of the night, worried that he's going to be hurt. And he's walking around blessing people with a small religious figurine. John's wife, Violet, is Catholic. She is very religious. And back then, John figures Shane must have seen his grandma doing this sort of thing. He does find the behavior unusual, but it's only afterwards that Shane's actions take on a new meaning for his grandpa. Sean, his friend Steve, and young Shane are on the road headed south for home. John is also in his vehicle when he learns there's been an accident. So I was driving from Stewart, and it's only about a kilometer over the height of Alaska on the border. And uh, a friend of mine was beating the horn, catching up to me. He said, go home. Your grandson's dead. I just my punch him. Just on the other side of the 100 mile house, the Vancouver side, there's a hill that goes down, double laid up, double laid down. There's a log cabin gas station right there. Steve was driving. Sean was sleeping in the passenger seat. He was beaten right up. The baby was sleeping in the back seat. Apparently he had a, a broken neck and a puncture lung. Sean's son, Shane, is killed in that car accident in 1993. His friend Steve, the driver of the vehicle, also dies. 
Only Sean makes it out alive. He was trying to get them back to the car and people were holding him back. The trauma of losing his boy sends Sean reeling. When he lost his son, he went down to the fall together. He just drunk and jumped out from the car. He wanted to go with him. He and his partner split up. And as you've heard in earlier episodes, he spends much of his adult life in and out of jail. Here's how John describes the nature of the trouble Sean gets into. Mostly petty crimes. In the later life, he would buy some stolen goods off of people, stuff like that, and then resell it himself for that. I know he's growing marijuana, but I think he was doing coke. Though no, he'd yell at people, he'd threaten people, but I've never known him to beat up anybody. He'd never come back much. Every now and then he'd show up for a couple of days and stuff like that. Even when he lived in the same town, now and then. Hello? Hi. Well, I'm talking to her right now. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. After John finishes his conversation, we begin to talk about the period leading up to the murders at Whiskey Creek. They had a camera like this. He set it up off-grid. That's where it all happened. My daughter had one next to him. Now, now, someone come and grab my daughter and took her out of there just before the shooting. Uh, I, the heavyset person, I don't know the guy's name, but I know the nickname of the guy that sent them. Told him something was going to happen. So this is news to me. I knew Tina had spent time up at Whiskey Creek. I did not know she had her own trailer there or that she was living in the encampment just before the murders. Find out that people knew something was going to happen. Here's how John learns his son has been murdered. I was at home and I, I heard that a bunch of police were out there. I thought he might have been caught for drugs or something, and a raid or something like that. I didn't know it. There was a murder till the cops knocked on my door and told me what happened. Police believe Sean is one of the Whiskey Creek victims, but at first he cannot be officially identified. Because I guess they were burnt so bad, probably close to uh, cremation already. Earlier in this series, I explored some of the possible motivations for the Whiskey Creek murders. We know the shootings were planned. Sean McGrath is widely believed to have been the target. But why? It's been suggested that Sean might have hurt the wrong person or crossed a line with someone in the community. John McGrath believes he knows why his son was killed. Sean and broke into the container and took that money. Then he went around saying he won a bunch of money at the casino. Never been inside of a casino, okay?
I've deleted the name of the man who John McGrath alleges broke into a container and stole money alongside his son, Sean. Clearly, if this is the motive behind the Whiskey Creek killings, this man's life, too, could be in peril. And if this is true, it's heartbreaking. It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies, Goodfellas. The guys have pulled a big heist, and they've been warned not to flash the cash. But then one of the guys buys his wife a car, and another buys his wife a fur coat. Did Sean's partner in the theft inadvertently touch off the massacre at Whiskey Creek by making a show of his newfound wealth? And if so, why wasn't he too killed that day? Was a deer to be shot, but he's scared. They scared, shocking, right? Still scared. Well, I guess so. Okay. Yeah. So Sean and another man were the intended targets, but the other man wasn't at the encampment that night. Now he too, like the survivor and the families of the other victims, live in fear. John believes it was a drug dealer out of Nanaimo that's responsible for the hit. Right. That's his money, Joe. Right. And they got shot for money. And that, so Sean was the target, you think? Sean was the target, they knew most. He tells me that the dealer set it up and paid for Sean to be murdered. I believe it's because of that money robbery. Yes. He had the money. I know he had the money. I know right. he took the money. Okay, I know he took the money. I know it was this guy's money. Now, who did you hire and how much did you pay? That's that's what they got to find out. It sounds logical to me. It is also John's understanding that two men, nutcases he calls them, heavy into drugs, were the shooters. He tells me he doesn't know for certain who they are, but he has his suspicions. John believes his son is likely guilty of stealing and that this is the reason he was targeted. He isn't trying to soft-pedal who his boy was in life. He's no angel. There's no way about him. He's no angel. Things happened in his life that turned him somehow or another. Maybe it's the baby's dad. Maybe it's the, kid, the people he started hanging out with. Or maybe it's the drugs. Still, he wants answers, he wants justice, and he wants to prevent this from happening to anyone else. I would love to see him caught before somebody else gets shot. Have they done it once and they're getting paid for it, they'll do it again, eventually. As for Tyler's family, well, they aren't holding their breath. They've complained to the RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission about what they now view as a neglective duty regarding how the police handled Tyler's case when he was initially reported missing and when he was living at the Whiskey Creek encampment. Although the RCMP will not speak with me about the case, I've read the official response. There's some explanation regarding different jurisdictions and privacy concerns. As to the allegation that Tyler was held hostage, they write, on October 14th, 2020, at 1 p.m., 
the Campbell River RCMP detachment requested assistance in conducting a check well-being on your son as you had reported that your son had called you and said he had been kidnapped, a constable attended to where your son was staying on the Melrose Forest Service Road and spoke in person with your son. Your son told the constable that you were crazy and admitted to the constable that he was just trying to get money from you. The person who your son stated had kidnapped him was not at the property during the time constable met with your son. Your son told constable that he had no safety concerns and that he wanted to remain where he was. The constable told your son he could get into the police vehicle and be driven away if he had any concerns, but your son declined and returned to the trailer. I am satisfied that the constable did not neglect his duty by failing to adequately investigate the check well-being of your son. After a careful review of all the available information, I do not support your allegation. The complaint is concluded and signed off on by Superintendent Mac Richards, Assistant District Commander of the RCMP Vancouver Island District. The family also instigates an investigation with the IIO, the Independent Investigations Office, a civilian-led police oversight agency for BC. It's regarding the time it took for police to go to the Whiskey Creek site on the day after the murders. The IIO look into the complaint, but determine they will not investigate further. Here is part of a correspondence Tyler's family received from Adrian Wilson, the Director of Investigations of the Independent Investigations Office of BC. I am so sorry for your loss in these terrible events, and I will address the further questions you have raised in the hope that you will understand our position. As I'm sure you can appreciate, with the sensitivities surrounding an investigation of this sort, I am not at liberty to directly release information in relation to the homicide investigation. I can say, however, that their investigation has established a timeline for events that took place. It also revealed that the injuries that your son Tyler sustained were non-survivable and that immediate medical attention would not and could not have changed that prognosis. The delay in police attending could not have changed that outcome and therefore the position of this office has not changed. We are not authorized in law to investigate. Evidence supports that Tyler and others were deceased long before any notification of an incident was made to police. Medical evidence shows that the prolonged delay in police attending after they were notified did not result in any further harm to the individual who was injured and remained at the scene. To quote Mr. McDonald from his concluding remarks on the file, the evidence here does not support a finding that the failure of police to respond led to any additional injury or harm to the affected person. Certainly, in relation to this incident and the results of the welfare checks that you initiated, the scope for things to have been done differently did exist. But to judge one's actions with the aid of hindsight will never result in satisfaction. I am very sorry for you and your family for the loss you have suffered and understand that you are seeking answers to help your understanding and grieving. I hope that the police investigation can provide you with those answers in the fullness of time. My requests for reports or interviews on these complaints have thus far been declined. Here's the short written response I received from Rebecca Whalen, the media and communications liaison for the IIO. The IIO investigated the incident as a whole, including the deaths and the injuries to the parties involved. 
Medical information confirmed that the delay in police attendance did not adversely affect the outcome for any of the parties, and therefore police actions did not play a role. The IIO is mandated to conduct investigations into police-involved incidents that result in serious harm or death. As such, any involvement that may have occurred between those individuals and police prior to October 31st, 2020, were not subject to IIO investigation. I haven't seen the coroner's report, and my request to review the RCMP's timeline was also denied. I understand that whatever injuries Tyler suffered could have ended his life before those first calls were made about the fire or the noises out at Whiskey Creek. But I also think about the survivor who lay bleeding, shot, surrounded by his dead friends, left waiting for six or seven hours. If you remember, I started this podcast talking about the Black Donnellys, the Irish family who were massacred and had their home burned to the ground almost 150 years ago. I mentioned at the outset that their story has been in my mind as I've worked on this series about the Whiskey Creek victims. Sean McGrath and those who lived alongside him in the Whiskey Creek encampment were viewed as trouble in the community. They were vilified to the point that few seemed to care when they were shot and had their homes burned to the ground. The Donnelly family massacre happened back in 1880. Since then, there have been plays, songs, movies, and even a craft beer inspired by the family. It's claimed the ghosts of the murdered family members can be seen floating in the fields near the murder site, and that horses will not ride past the former Donnelly homestead after midnight. So their story lives on. But there was never justice for the Donnelly family. And I wonder, whether there will ever be justice for their modern-day counterparts at Whiskey Creek. Life's life. I don't care who they are, what they are, or anything. It's life. Somebody's son, somebody's daughter, you know. Someone's suffering. I miss him every day. I just can't believe somebody like, like Tyler would end up being murdered in in this way because he certainly didn't deserve it. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have heard a fly. I feel because of who Sean McGrath was, they figure maybe it was a blessing. I think I now have a pretty good idea about what happened at Whiskey Creek and why. But with so few people willing to go on the record, with so many sources concerned about their own safety, I've taken this as far as I can. For now, without answers, without charges, the community of Whiskey Creek is left with speculation, rumor, and fear. People are scared. For sure. Understandably yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. With a small place like this, you don't see the lights of that happening. Everybody's scared. If you have information about the Whiskey Creek murders, please call the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit's tip and information line at 250-380-6211. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5.
2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.